Matthew 19. And we're going to continue what we went through last week. And um, I ask you to stand with me. And I don't say this with any pride at all. Uh, in fact, I think it deserves the opposite of that. Uh, I planned on doing verses 1 through 12 in one sermon, and it's become three. So today we're going to be going through verses 7 through 9. As in this week and next week, we saw marriage magnified last week. Today we're going to see the implications of a low view of the doctrine of marriage. And then next week we're going to see, in part, the, doc- the implications of the doctrine of a high view of the doctrine of marriage, especially regarding singleness in the Christian life. Okay, So I'm going to read verses 3 through 12, but again, we are focusing today on the Pharisees' retort to Christ that we saw last week in verses 7 through 9 and Christ's explanation, and hopefully we can derive some, some good substance from that. Verse 3, God's Word to us today. And the Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking. Again, that word, tempted. They're tempting Him like the devil did. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man Separate in our text today. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give her to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case, of a man with his wife, a high view of marriage, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you today, and uh, I, I tremble at the, the prospect and the obligation, but also the opportunity and the privilege to, to be able to try to explain your word to your people today. I pray, God, that we'd understand your word better. I pray that we would fear falling into false doctrine through our own passions as the Pharisees did. I pray that you would guard us and that we would be skeptical and suspicious of our own minds, God, that we would go to you in faith and truth and trust everything you say. God, please help us today. Help us to derive some benefit from these very, very weak words, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure that you've probably seen this on bumper stickers, or maybe not. I've seen it on a bumper sticker in my Daughter proudly displays it on her shirt sometimes. Uh, theology matters, okay? Theology matters. And that's contrary to what we would typically hear in our culture that really what matters is my own personal experience that I have, 
What matters is me doing good, broadly speaking, defined by my own mind to my fellow man. But the Bible says over and over again that that doctrine really matters for the Christian because it invades the practical things of our daily lives. It, It does this positively. You might recall in Philippians chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul prays for the Philippians. It says that their love would overflow and abound, right? But the love overflowing and abound is them discerning what is good. It's through discerning the good and the proper and the lovely, the things that God has given to us in the gospel, and good flows from that. Theology matters, but we know that theology matters on the opposite end, don't we? We know that, for example, if we have a low view of the doctrine of marriage in our culture, if we have a low view of men and women being created in the image of God as distinct beings that complement each other, this has drastic implications for how our culture runs. It's a denial of creation. But the same is true for our text today. Doctrine of marriage matters. And that's what he's trying to tell the Pharisees. And more than the Pharisees, trying to tell his church today. Jesus Christ here in this text, he teaches both his enemies and his apostles next week the implication of our view of marriage. The implication of our view of marriage. And the purpose here is to warn us. Not to warn the culture. Okay? This text is given to warn every member of God's church that a low view of marriage, it ends in something terrible. It ends in the multiplication of sin. It ends in the multiplication of offending our Creator, our Redeemer, and our God. A low view of marriage causes these things. But also, I want us to consider today that this text should compel us to lean on Christ, especially as He is our prophet, priest, and king. And we'll try to open that up. First, I want us to see that this text tells us that we ought to be warned today. That a low view of marriage is far from just a doctrinal issue that conservatives and liberals argue about in our culture. A low view of marriage multiplies sin. And that's what we see in verses 7-9 through of our text. We see Christ first correcting the doctrinal error of the Pharisees. Christ saw this as such an important thing that the enemies that came against Him to tempt Him and to trap Him, He would have been just to say, I'm not even talking to you people about this. I know what you're up to. I know what you're trying. Leave me alone. But Christ, for the love of His people and His church, He explains the doctrine of marriage. And in context, last week, He explained His own and the proper, the biblical, high view of marriage in contrast with the Pharisees, didn't he? Now, if you recall, the Pharisees, they had a very, very low view of marriage. Very low. They thought that it was lawful to divorce your wife at any time. Okay, They they followed the school of Hillel, a rabbi at the time, who taught very explicitly that even if your wife burns your food in the kitchen... Okay? Or if you just find another woman that's more pleasing to you, you can divorce your wife for any cause. 
And the Pharisees really believed that they had the freedom of that. Now, think about the similarity that that has with our culture today. Their low view of marriage could be summarized perhaps in this. Marriage is merely a contract, a temporary contract that's dependent only on my personal happiness. That's all marriage depends upon in the Pharisaic worldview. And therefore, I can get rid of my wife at any time. But Christ's view was far higher than that. You might recall Christ's view from last week. He quotes from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 to show that God created man as male and female that they would be joined together in marriage. That is, the normal function. There are exceptions, but the normal function and intention of God was always that a man and a woman, singular man, singular woman, would be joined together in holy union. This was intended by God in Christ's mind. His high view of marriage was so contrasted to theirs. But secondly, Christ, quoting from Genesis 2, certainly believed that marriage was a covenant. Not just a contract, but a sworn promise of lifelong commitment and fidelity between two people. We saw that in the language it's used of of flee or leave your mother and father and cleave to your husband or your wife. This is covenantal language. And not to mention what Joey read this week. Malachi chapter 2 says very clearly that marriage is a covenant between us and our God. Binds us together. But, but Christ, in overarching all of these things, shows the pinnacle of human marriage considered outside of Himself as being that God really made two people one flesh in the covenant of marriage. That this isn't just a human contract. But God really and mysteriously binds two people together in this. And if God has done that, then we have no right to divide that over our own personal scruples because of my own happiness. It is beyond that and deeper than that. And we could go on, but time doesn't permit us. If you listened to last week, Christ leaves it to the Apostle Paul to show us the highest view of marriage. He leaves it to the Apostle Paul to describe for us in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is the one whom Genesis 2.24 was talking about primarily and is typified in human marriage. But... The sum of what I want us to see here today is that the contrast between the Pharisees' low view of marriage and Christ's high view of marriage could not be more severe or extreme. And as Christ explains this in our text, and we put ourselves in the drama of this narrative, we see Christ explaining this, and then comes the Pharisees' trap that they've set. You might recall the Pharisees, they were attempting to to tempt Jesus Christ as the devil had done. And so as a tempter or a good hunter goes into the woods and lays a trap or a snare and covers it with leaves so it may not be seen, I believe that they knew that Jesus Christ in some way was going to show a high doctrine of marriage here. They knew that Christ preached in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 33, I believe it is, that he had a high view of marriage. And here, they think they have an ace in the whole argument. Okay, verse 7. They're ace in the whole argument, so they think. But I want us to see that it's a terrible argument. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now notice the force of that. 
You're saying, Jesus, that marriage is so high and exalted, it's a covenant of lifelong commitment, and God really makes two one. Well, doesn't that contradict what the law of God says? And Jesus, you yourself have said many times, the law cannot be broken in John chapter 10. The Scripture cannot be broken. You've said that you've come to fulfill the law, not to replace the law. So how is it that Moses commanded us to put away our wives? Notice, that's where the emphasis falls. In the Pharisaic mind, in their doctrine of marriage, Moses commanded men to divorce their wives for any cause. The question is, where do we find such a thing? The short answer is we don't. <laughs> okay? But the long answer is that they are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you'll turn there with me, just so you have it in your mind. This is the only text that could have been thought about by the Pharisees. Deuteronomy 24. And I I just want us to very simply look at what is said here and see if we can derive the Pharisaic doctrine out of it that Moses commanded us, as men specifically, to divorce our wives for any cause. Notice verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." At the first blush, we can see that the Pharisees saw this and especially highlighted and got their eyes to be fixed upon that he finds no favor because he has found some indecency in her. And they fixed upon that, okay? But they twisted the words of Moses here and saw that this was a command of God. And I want us to think of the logical conclusion of that. Moses commanded us to divorce our wives, even though that's not in our text. I hope you can see that. He commanded us to divorce our wives. Therefore, what is true about God? God is actually pleased with our divorces. We're merely being obedient to Moses and by implication to God by divorcing our wives for any cause. Now, look at the explanation of Jesus Christ. And I hope that from reading Deuteronomy 24, you can see Christ's wording is very important. Just as the the Pharisees say, Moses commanded us, notice what Christ says. In verse 8, He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, notice that. I think that Christ is talking about the plain sense of the text here. That there, in fact, was in the law of Moses an allowance. But notice, it's not a command. Christ said there was an allowance in the law. And that allowance came because of a hardness of heart. I find it fascinating that Christ, he doesn't say Moses commanded them, right? He points to the Pharisees. Moses commanded you, he allowed you because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart. Now, Moses allowing this, the reason for the allowance, okay, so 
If Moses did not command men to get divorced, but he says, Christ says, that God allowed it through Moses. Notice the reason for that. It's not because there's been a change in God. God didn't allow divorce because He thought it was good at one time, and now He thinks it's bad. Or He thought it was really bad at the beginning of creation, and now at this time, He thought it was so good that He would command it or allow it. Rather, the difference that we see here is it's because of your hardness of heart that God allowed this particular thing. Okay. Now what that implies is that at the time that Moses wrote Deuteronomy, there was unchecked divorce happening in the people of God at the time. There was a hardness of heart in the people, and therefore Moses allowed for this divorce to happen. But it's not as if God looked at the divorce that was taking place and said, well, so you people are so hard that I am not even going to give you a law about this. Rather, God gave them this law to get a certificate of divorce when they got divorced in order to restrain the sin that they had. Okay? Because without a legal proceeding taking place, men would just get rid of their wives, leave their houses, desert them for any cause and any reason whatsoever. And while they still divorced their wives, this legal procedure restrained the heart of man by, by having them go through a legal procedure to do it. They had to get a certificate which witnesses would have to sign. Just think about that, how that would restrain the evil heart of man. Perhaps his food was burnt one day when he gets home, and in his fury and sinfulness, he decides he's going to leave his wife. Well, I've got to go and find two witnesses now. I've got to get a certificate of divorce. And this would restrain his passion, the idea is. Not allow. And also, it solemnized. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It made it solemn. Marriage solemn. And divorce, a solemn thing that had to be done. They had to come before a magistrate to have this happen. And so Christ's response here is that Moses did allow it. But he only allowed it, not because it's good in God's eyes, but because you're so sinful in your hearts, God had to restrain you by this civil law. Okay? God had to restrain you from this. And so, Pharisees... You have misunderstood even the law of Moses given here. Even this obscure law of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, you've twisted it in such a way to turn an allowance that was supposed to restrain you into a command where you can do any of your sinful will. But Jesus puts an exclamation point on this and says, it's not so from the beginning. It's not so from the beginning. This allowance was not from the beginning. And this should draw our minds to to an important principle of how we interpret the Scripture, right? Jesus saw the priority of marriage and the highness of marriage as given in the very creation before the fall of man. That God in creation, He ordained an institution of marriage and that institution is good and the ideal seen in that supersedes the laws that are given after that meant to restrain men's evil. That is, that the ideal of creation remains unchanged. That man and woman would abide in marriage, lifelong marriage, all of their days. But God in His goodness to restrain the people's sin put this in place. But the Pharisees had a backwards interpretation of Scripture. Instead of, like Jesus, going to the clear text of the Bible to show what marriage is and then interpreting the unclear, they did the opposite. 
They went to an obscure legal code, twisted the wording of it, focused on certain things that they wanted to focus on in order to avoid all the other parts of Scripture. Now, just think about that with me. Not only is Genesis clear, but what Brother Joey read in Malachi chapter 2, it's exceedingly clear that God hates divorce. Well, we see in Proverbs that divorce, I mean, that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture, the highness and the loveliness of two men joined, or two, a woman and a man joined together. Please forgive me. Okay? Please forgive me. A man and a woman joined together is lovely in God's sight, but the Pharisees so focus, okay, they so focus on this obscure doctrine, this obscure text in Scripture, that they avoid everything else that the Bible says clearly, okay? They avoid everything that the Bible says clearly. Hopefully we can get back on track from that um, mistake. And this error, this terrible error of the doctrine of marriage in the Pharisees' mind, it led them to attribute their sin to God. To see it as holy in God's sight. Now, as we're reading this, we should get a sense from the mouth of Christ. As we saw last week when He said, have you not read? And here, in verse 8, that the Pharisees have made a total blunder of their theological system. They have completely misinterpreted the law of God. Okay, And so, in some respect, we ought to say, how could they have gone so wrong? How could the Pharisees have so misinterpreted Scripture to end up at this terrible place? But this text, I want to remind us today, is not for us to look at the Pharisees and say, how stupid were those men at that time? Or even to look at our culture and say, how stupid is our culture to not see this clearly? Because we are all prone to do the same kind, to have the same kind of errors in our heart. We are all prone to doctrinal error. This text shows us the Pharisees were led and convinced themselves of terrible error that led to absolute calamity in their ethical lives. And we are all prone to this. And the first thing I want us to see today is that we are not intellectual blank slates. We're not intellectual blank slates that we are able to to see data and interpret it correctly and come up with the correct conclusion. Now, I know for going through 2020, right, it's very clear that our culture puts forth the idea that all of us are intellectually blank slates and we're all able to come up with exactly the right conclusions about everything in the world, right? 2020 produced more infallible epidemiologists than I've ever seen in my life, right? Well, a couple people laughed. That's okay. Um, everybody in 2020 was a master epidemiologist, a master economist, and a master of theology, okay? Everybody knew exactly what... The problem was and what the solution was. It's because we believe that we are truly objective creatures. We are able to sort through this data and we are not moved or blinded in any sense at all. But the Scriptures tell us the opposite. The Scripture tells us that our intellect is not a free thing that is able to lead our heart, but rather that our heart leads our intellect. Isn't that what happened to the Pharisees here? Now, The heart leading the intellect, the affections of my life, my desires leading what I think, 
is spoken about in two ways. It's spoken about in a good way in Scripture, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's not the intellect that leads to the fear of the Lord, but an affection and a love for God in my heart that, that leads to true knowledge about God and knowledge about what I'm to do. Oh, and in John chapter 7, um, Jesus says about the same thing. He says this, if anyone, in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You see what he says there? He doesn't say that you are intellectual blank slates and that you can hear the data that I'm preaching and you're able to discern whether it's right or not and then follow God's will. That's how we often think. But if your will is to do God's will, if you love God, then you will know that I'm speaking the truth. The Bible speaks about this in a good way. Our will has to be changed. We have to be ethically pointed in the right direction for our intellect to appropriately work. But the opposite is true as well, isn't it? That sinful desires in my heart lead me to doctrinal error. And I would tell you, brothers and sisters, in, in a degree of things, all doctrinal errors that we have are a result of our sinful hearts. It's a result of our sinful hearts. I, I want us to notice a, a couple of ways this is true. First, as I've already said, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That sinful desires lead us to doctrinal error. Sinful desires lead us to doctrinal error. And the reason that we're taking this tangent right now is for us to be warned appropriately as Christ warns the Pharisees that we wouldn't be led into error and therefore be led into greater sin. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5. through five, Sinful desires lead to doctrinal error. Notice, as Paul teaches... He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Notice what Paul attributes here. He says, these people, you can mark it down, Timothy, if anybody's causing problems and teaching contrary, it's because that they're puffed up in their own heart. They have a desire that is leading their intellect in this particular way. But we can also say that the, the love of sin compels us to intellectually refuse the truth. This is... In salvation, when people refuse to hear the gospel, it's because they love sin. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 12. Notice the coming of the lawless one, Antichrist is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Notice what's said after that. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had 
pleasure in unrighteousness. The reason they refuse the truth is not because the data isn't intellectually uh, good enough for them. It's because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. And then it causes us, sinful desires cause us to cling to our error. And this is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we have three witnesses here. 2 Timothy 3. Notice, again, our affections, our desires, our sinful love of sin makes us cling to error. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy 3. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And then, forgive me, notice in verses, verse 5, I read the wrong text, excuse me. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power for avoid such people. Because, in verse 4, it tells us that they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Okay, So, to put that all together in that clumsy reading of that text. These men are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And therefore, they sneak into houses and they, they drag other people in to sin. And these people being led away are led astray by various passions of their heart. It's not intellectual alone. We are not intellectual blank slates, but the change of the will in our heart as new creations causes us to love God and cling to truth, and the opposite is true, that the love of sin in our hearts causes us and leads us into error. We are not led by the intellect. We are people led by the heart into what we think and what we believe. In church, the application of this is very clear. We are not to trust our own minds. Now, I think maybe there can't be something more countercultural that is said than that, believed by both liberals and conservatives alike. We believe that we are truly able to trust our minds. In fact, my mind is the only thing that can be trusted. But the Bible doesn't speak that way, brothers and sisters. And I am not, not trying to make a doctrine out of my own experience, but in my pastoral heart, as I thought about this this week, all the people I have seen in my life fall away from the truth of the Gospel. All of them have fallen away from the truth of the Gospel because they have thought that they were able to completely discern the truth in their own eyes. They didn't have to cling to anybody else. They didn't have to believe anybody else. They did not have to put any emphasis on what the Bible taught or what church history taught or what their elders taught or what their Christian friends taught. It was only their own mind that mattered. Proverbs 28.26 tells us this. Clearly, this is a command from God, brothers and sisters. Whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And the Bible gives us means to walk in wisdom, doesn't it? And we'll talk about that. I know this is countercultural, but the Scripture is very clear that we are not to have such confidence in our own intellectual ability and believe that I am so freed from sin that I can objectively examine all these things and come away unscathed. 
The Bible tells us that we're to be careful about false doctrine, even to the point that we're to avoid those who teach bad doctrine. We're to avoid those who teach bad doctrine. And again, with the internet, everybody in this room is one Google search away from finding the exact answers that they want to find about any particular topic related to Christianity. Now, my own personal experience, when a family member of mine, a uh, number, number of years ago, a long time ago, came, came out of the closet as a homosexual, it was a very big struggle in my mind not to allow that knowledge of this person that I loved to affect my doctrine. And we see that, brothers and sisters, don't we? Those family members, those who we love that have been infected with this in particular, it's a great struggle for those people. It's a great struggle. But we are called to avoid bad doctrine. I could have, in that moment gone online, and I could have found any number of theologians that could have satisfied my intellectual curiosity and made it not difficult for me in that time. Right? And I tell you today, you can go online right now, and any false doctrine that you want to have verified in your mind, you'll find somebody that agrees with it, and they can argue it plausibly. Even from Scripture. Now, it would be false, but they can argue it. Now, this is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 16... I'd ask you to turn there with me. We don't take this text seriously in the church of Jesus Christ today because we believe that we are intellectually capable and that my desire doesn't lead my intellect, but my intellect leads my desires. Notice, verse 17, Paul says, almost the last words of his epistle, I appeal to you, brothers, I beg you, To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We're to avoid these things, brothers and sisters. We're We're to be children in sinfulness, but we're to be mature in truth. We're to be mature in truth. Until we arrive at glory, Redeemer, Covenant Church, until we arrive at glory, we must be distrustful of our own hearts, of our own thoughts, of our own minds. Beware of false teachers that distort the doctrine of marriage through plausible arguments. They're much more prevalent today than perhaps in the Pharisees' time. They have us deny all sorts of different things. And I'll tell you, They can give you plausible arguments if you want to hear them because it's in our affections, right? If you want to hear them, they can give you plausible arguments as every false doctrine can. And we are to avoid them because we are distrustful of ourselves. Okay? And the reason why we have to avoid this is because bad doctrine does not stay in our intellect. Our hearts lead us into bad doctrine. It infects our minds. We, we, we take doctrines to ourselves to satisfy the desires of our hearts so that we can go on sinning without my conscience telling me it's wrong. But it never stays there, brothers and sisters, because the intellect leads our actions. The heart leads the intellect. And the intellect leads the action. Once I have the ammunition in my mind that I can do such a thing and my conscience can't tell me it's wrong anymore, then I do those things without restraint. Just like the Pharisees do in our text. Now, 
I want us to see this as well. And I'll just turn to one passage today to show that our intellect leads our actions. Romans chapter 1. And reading verse 18, and then for time's sake, 21 through 23. We know this well, don't we? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice verses 21 through 23 how the intellect leads in this. They've suppressed the truth. Their affections led. They've suppressed it. Now verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You notice that? They suppressed the knowledge of God. They convinced themselves that paganism and idolatry was true and therefore it led to the action of idolatry. And this is exactly what Jesus warns the Pharisees about in our text. It's exactly what He warns about in our text. That their intellect, they were able, these are smart men that are coming against Jesus Christ. Smart men. They were able to convince themselves that divorce was not only acceptable, but pleasing to God for any reason. And Jesus lovingly shows the implications of their bad doctrine. And this is in verse 9 of our text. And I realize I've had you turn all over, but verse 9 says this. Notice the strength of Christ's words. And I say to you. That is, pay particular attention here. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We tend to think, if I can intellectually convince myself of a doctrine, and I go and do whatever I've convinced myself of, that God doesn't hold me culpable for that. That's not what the text says. It says it doesn't matter what you believe about marriage. In God's sight, divorce leads to adultery. Divorce leads to adultery. A bad doctrine of marriage multiplies sinfulness in the life. It leads to terrible consequences. And the, the main point here is not the exception that Christ gives, okay? That's typically what our minds focus on, except for the cause of sexual immorality. That's not the main point, but I, I think that we need to briefly spend some time on it. Christ gives this exception because the ideal often isn't reached in this sinful world. The ideal of Genesis 2.24, that we would be in covenant, lifelong relationship, it often doesn't manifest itself because that covenant is broken by sexual immorality or by desertion. This covenant of companionship that we would love one another and do good to one another all the days of our life is broken in adultery. Now, that does not mean that we must divorce. In fact, the Bible is very clear that it is better to stay married in those situations. But Christ is very clear in this text. Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. The sexual immorality is an exception to this rule. And a brother or sister is is free, the offended party is free to divorce in those situations. And in desertion, this is the case as well. Now this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 15. Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, 
Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Okay? They're not bound to this. And this exact same language is used by Paul in Romans 7 to talk about marriage. Being in, in bondage in the marriage covenant. If an unbelieving partner separates, if they desert the marriage, they can no longer act as the covenant partner because they've separated, then a brother or sister is not enslaved. Okay? Now, quickly, you might say, well, it says the unbelieving partner. What if there's two believers and one leaves? Does this brother or sister bound to not marry again? I don't believe so because 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul tells us that he that does not provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And he has denied the faith. Okay? If somebody abandons their family completely and refuses to take care of them, church discipline will be enacted and that person is recognized for what they are as an unbeliever. Okay? And that person is an unbelieving partner that separates. Now, I give that exception very briefly and as an excursus to what we're talking about because, again, the main point here is not, when are we allowed to divorce? The main point is that a low view of marriage leads to terrible consequences. Lust led to intellectual support, and that led to adultery in God's sight, regardless of what the person who, who, who is doing the adultery thinks it is. Okay? Now, when we see that Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife commits adultery, in our culture, that's not a big deal. But in the Bible, adultery is extremely serious. I want us to briefly think about a couple texts. In Leviticus 18, adultery, among a number of other sexual sins, was the cause that God overthrew the nations. Israel coming into the land of Canaan. God warns them in Leviticus chapter 18. He says, do not be like them. List sexual sins and says, because I cast them out of this land because they did this. In Leviticus chapter 20, every individual who commits adultery was stoned to death. Now, this goes back to the exception rule, right? There was an exception in the Old Testament to divorce because if you committed adultery, you're dead, okay? But in the New Covenant, the church doesn't claim, nor should it claim that power, okay? But this has not changed in the New Covenant. Not changing the new covenant at all. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, brothers and sisters, Paul tells us that sexual immorality should not even be named among us. And in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 4, the, the writer says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The implications for our view of marriage are radical in God's sight. Now, the reason I chose to condense this and not go through singleness this week is because I know in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, and I think every heart in this room, this text can have, the, can have a condemning effect upon us because none of us are sexually pure in God's sight. None of us. This text is not meant to condemn us. It's meant to compel us to lean on Christ. As we think about this doctrine of marriage, the application should be clear that we should be careful about the doctrine of marriage. But we shouldn't be careful about it only to be political pundits and go out and attack the culture. It's not the reason this text 
is given. This is given for God's people to correct us and to guide us to God-glorifying Christianity. The application is that we should lean on Jesus Christ as our prophet. He has told us what is good, brothers and sisters. He has told us what is acceptable in God's sight. And we cannot let anybody else swerve us away from that path. Because sin is deceptive. We've already seen that. But sin is also contagious, isn't it? I know in dealing with a certain person at one time that was being tempted to divorce One of the reasons they were tempted is because they were talking to another person that claimed to be a Christian that was trying to convince them that divorce was okay. That they could leave. They had convinced themselves of this intellectually. Now they're trying to to spread the love, so to speak. But it's not love, it's hatred. Sin is contagious and we are not to look to the world but the Bible to tell us how to live. But not the Bible alone. Because like the Pharisees, we can twist the Bible to say whatever I want it to say. I'm that deceptive in my heart. My heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's why we need the church, brothers and sisters. We need one another. That if we're being tempted in a certain area, we go to our brothers and sisters and say, this is what I'm seeing. Tell me what you think. We go to our elders. We go to our deacons. We go to church history. We are so sinful in our hearts. We need all of these tools to help us to stay within the bounds of God-glorifying Christianity. We must use them. Brothers and sisters, I know that things are worse than I think they are. If there's one thing I've learned as a pastor in seven years, that's what I've learned. They're worse than I think they are. In our own hearts and in our marriages. Brothers and sisters, go to Christ. Go to the Bible. Go to your brothers and sisters because it's more dangerous outside of these bounds. But we are also to lean on Him as our great priest. Our weak consciences are easily condemned by passages like this when we see the terrible nature of adultery and what it deserves from God's condemning hand. When we see what we've done in our thoughts and our minds with our eyes, with our bodies, we're condemned easily. But Scripture, I, I, I hope that you, you'll take this to heart, brothers and sisters, as an as a interpretive principle in the Bible, that the Scripture never speaks to the Christian, the one who believes in Christ, with the purpose of us being condemned. It never speaks that way. It only speaks to drive us to Jesus Christ. When it threatens the condemning power of the law, it's meant to drive us to the one who paid for it all. Always to convict and drive us to him. Brothers and sisters, we have transgressed Christ's high view of marriage in one way or another. There is not a person in this room who views marriage as highly as he ought to view it. Even in our best moments when we get a glimpse of that glory in Ephesians chapter 5, we fall short of it. And I know that because of how we treat our, our wives and our husbands. How we think about them. How we're tempted to disdain them. We have all been led by our passions to intellectually rubber stamp our actions in one way or another. And here we see the terribleness and blackness of our sins in order that we might flee to our Savior. And realize, brothers and sisters, that you have all of His righteousness. Freely given to you. It is Christ alone who viewed marriage as it ought to be viewed. Christ alone who viewed marriage as it ought to be viewed. 
It is Christ alone who is spotlessly the faithful spouse to His bride. Never has there been a man or a woman who has been so faithful as Jesus Christ. And any sin leads to hell here. But Christ has given us His righteousness and all of His faithfulness is offered freely to you today. Freely! There's nothing you have to do to obtain it but simply believe and rest in Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, we have all of His righteousness as our husband. right? But He has taken all of our shame. All of our shame. And I've tried to word this in a way to, to poke you to know this. He's taken all of our shame. He has taken all of your unfaithfulness. Jesus Christ has taken all of the sins of your mind. He has taken all of your improper dress, all of your flirtatiousness, all of your immorality, all of your adultery of your eyes and your hands and your life. Christ willingly took it on the cross and paid for it all. He paid for it. And this is meant to drive us to Jesus. If you have a low view of marriage, repent because there's grace here at the cross. If you've committed great sin, repent because there is grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as that woman in John chapter 4 was with many men and the one that she was living with was not her husband. But Christ called her to that day. He calls us freely. There is no sin that can be committed by the Christian that would separate you from Him. But it's meant to drive you to Him. And I want you to focus on this, brothers and sisters, because of this. We're sanctified and made holy in our minds by faith and not by the law. When we believe in Jesus Christ, that's where the fruit of sanctification flows from. And not by us just trying harder to obey. Believe this Gospel truth, and I promise you, you will live holy. If you believe Christ with all of your heart, rest on Him completely, not anything on your own works, you will have a holier life. We obey Him not to earn His righteousness, not to pay for our sins of our mind and our heart, but to thank God for all that He has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so today... I just want us to simply see from this passage. Um, It's been very long for the few verses that we've had. I just want us to see that a low view of marriage, it multiplies sin. A low view of any doctrine of the Bible multiplies sinfulness in our hearts because our hearts are sinful. And therefore, we must be careful to look to the pages of Scripture and to use all the means earthly that God has given us to help us stay on the path. And also, that we would lean on Jesus Christ. He's given us all these things. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And He's given us great salvation through Him so that we can have joy even as we are convicted of our sin. Brother, we can pray.